This episode was made possible by our incredible patrons. Their faithful support allows us to continue the work of amplifying the voices of spiritual abuse survivors. We are a small team composed of two families. We committed early on to not monetizing any of the stories, so we rely solely on the donations of our Patreon community to operate. If you value the work and are able to contribute, you can join for as little as $5 a month. Another way to support Bodies Behind the Bus is by following, rating, and reviewing the podcast. It only takes a moment, but has a tremendous impact on our reach. Thank you for daring to listen. Today's episode is a little bit different for the Bodies Behind the Bus team. We are having a conversation with my dear friend, Layla. Layla is a first-generation Palestinian-American. This conversation may or may not be full of content that is challenging for some of us to listen to, but we urge you to enter with curiosity as Layla gives us the honor of learning more about her family and culture. On October 7th, 2023, the world sat glued to the news in horror as stories started trickling out about the attack on Israeli civilians by Hamas. We had mere hours to grieve and process the reports of Israeli death before we began to be confronted with the deaths of Palestinian civilians as Israel retaliated. And some of us were introduced to the realities of the Palestinian people in Gaza and the West Bank for the first time. As I have been privileged to bear witness to Layla's grief and processing the past few weeks, an idea sparked to have this conversation in front of all of you. Through knowing Layla's story, my understanding, empathy, and passion for the Palestinian people has grown, and my heart has broken as I have watched the Western Church cheer for the end times or blindly support the bombings of innocent men, women, and children. Today, I hope we all leave this episode with a desire to see the Imago Day in each other and to love all of our neighbors as ourselves. I'm Jonna Harris, and this is At the Bus Stop by the Bodies Behind the Bus podcast. Hello, and welcome back to the Bodies Behind the Bus podcast. We have a big task ahead of us, but I believe in you, Layla. You can do this. <laughs> we can do this together. We're going to start with talking a little bit just about who Layla is and her life and her family and, again, how they ended up in America and what it was like growing up as a Palestinian-American. So welcome. Hello. Okay, so like Jonna shared, I am a first-generation Palestinian born and raised in America. A majority of our family still lives in the Middle East. We've had opportunities to go visit them in Palestine twice in my life. Those were such beautiful, beautiful memories I will always hold dear. There was definitely tension growing up. In America, my parents are Christian. And so we, at a young age, started attending church. And when I was younger, it was actually an Arabic Christian church. So the entire service was in Arabic. Um, and as we grew, uh, my parents saw the need for us to continue to assimilate into the American culture. So we started attending American churches. It was hard finding where I fit in the picture, especially when Zionism is such a big part of Western church culture. Where do I fit in that story? I looked up Zionism too, as far as I'm on the trusty Wikipedia. So oh, I definitely yeah. think there's probably like 
Zionism from the sense of state of Israel and then Christian Zionism, Mm -hmm. which is more about Christians, from what I can gather, really backing and believing that Jewish people should return to their homeland, that that is part Mm -hmm. of, I guess, God's plan. And it looks like that's kind of all over the map as far as people who support that and et cetera. And so like you can sense like the complexity of you have a people group that are already living in this land, your family. You have, a, especially at the time of World War II, after the Holocaust, yeah. you have this desire to have a nation state for for the Jewish people who in Europe and elsewhere to return to this land. So to me, like you're describing this, and I've always thought of this too, this whole situation is heartbreaking, but it's also just so much historical all the way back to the beginning yeah. of what we know of time. But it seems like it's just a pressure cooker. Everybody has this intent desire to be in this land but no one really knows how to make it work. To me, like, like, I don't know how to solve that puzzle. That in itself has to be tremendously stressful and unbearable. Well, and I feel like you even hit an interesting point of like the Jewish state of like, so yes. now we've actually mixed together faith and politics and we've mixed together government with our churches. And so I think that's actually where it's hard to find where you fit, right? Like as a Palestinian Christian American, mm-hmm. I'm I'm sitting here going, well, if you're so pro-Israel, the existence of it, it continues to exist because it's oppressing the Palestinian people, because my family had mm-hmm. to flee for their lives because we became refugees. Because of that, it exists. And so how do I sit here going, well, I believe in Jesus, but how do I fit in this picture of what the Western church has wrapped itself up into? when it comes to Zionism. So that was definitely something I struggled with a lot in my earlier years of how do I fit in this? As I aged, 9-11 happened. Personally, I stopped identifying as a Palestinian person. I would just completely drop off that when people ask me, where do you come from? Very, very distant ties to France and Egypt. And that sounds exotic. It doesn't sound like Palestine. It doesn't have the associations that America's come to make with it, where before it was, we were dehumanized in order to make space for the state of Israel and dehumanized again when all Arabs became terrorists. And so it was much, much safer to just separate that aspect of myself in order to fit not only in American culture, but in American Christian culture of the tension was too much for a young mind and body to take. And so I stripped away that aspect of myself in order to find a way to exist, to safely exist in the the church spaces that we were in. When I hear you describe that, like you've got all of these kind of things feeding into like who you are as a person, what you're doing. So when you're when you're growing up in the church and in America, did you feel safe going to the churches or what was that like? Again, I was I was young, right? And so I think that there is so much of us as we age, we can grow in our confidence and our desire to embrace all of us. Um, but when you're younger, there is a lot of pressure to find a place where you fit. I didn't know where I fit in the American church. We went to some pretty conservative, even fundamental Bible churches. And so it was very difficult to hear, well, if I want the coming of the end times, I want Jesus to come. And then like that means that Palestinians can't be here because the Jewish people need to be here so we can push towards that. And so it was definitely a safety thing so that I can feel safe in this space. 
I felt like I had to smother an aspect of myself because I didn't know how to exist with both. How do I, I believe in Jesus. Like that's not where I don't know how I fit. I believe in him, but how do I believe in him and stand in a place that says these people need to be gone so that the state of Israel can exist? So you have that going on, but if you could explain a little bit more about your family's story, right? Yeah. Your grandparents, talk to us a little bit about um, their lives and where they were. So my my Sido uh, Hawad, Sido means grandpa in Arabic. That's my great grandfather. He actually owned a flour mill in West Jerusalem and it was burned down. They lost their home. They lost their business. Uh, they became refugees. They actually had to run away to Jordan in order to, to stay safe. He had my Sido Nicola. That's my dad's dad. So that's my grandpa. Because they owned the flour mill, my Sido then continued that family business, and they just had to start over in Jordan. They eventually made it back into Palestine again later down the road. Um, on my mom's side, my Sido Saba was actually a shepherd. And so he, I mean, it's so beautiful. He was a shepherd in Ramallah. He would take olive wood and carve figurines of the nativity scenes. He'd sell them in Jerusalem to tourists. I mean, it's all so beautiful. I still get to hold on to some of those nativity scenes that that he's carved over the years while caring for his flock on the rolling hills before. I mean, as the settlers continued to take more and more of Palestinian land, the land's transformed so much. I mean, it is so much more densely populated. And that's kind of my grandparents. And then my father, when he finished school, he actually had an amazing opportunity to continue studying abroad. So he took that opportunity to study in Iraq. And then from there, he actually moved to Tennessee and was able to continue his education. And from there, you know, I'm here. (laughs) So Israel became an official Jewish state. Was it 48, 49? I can't remember. Yeah. 48. So prior to that, your family was doing what? Living on the land, especially my on my father's side in West Jerusalem, owning a flour mill. They were doing very, very well. Bread is a huge part. <laughs> like We love our pita bread. We love baking. And so it was, I mean, they were very successful in their, in their town. And um, when the Nikba happened, when the crisis happened. And what was the Nikba? Can you explain that? So that's when the Jewish people were given essentially reparations and able to come into what was Palestinian land to work to create the state of Israel. So when that happened, people were there already. And so those people had to move. They had to get out of the way in order to create space for the people who now wanted to occupy that land. And so their flour mill burned down. They lost their home. They lost their business. They lost so much. And they became refugees. They had to flee in order to save their lives. And what? how did the fl- flour mill burn down? From the conflict? <laughs> yeah. And it, yeah, through through that. Do you yeah. know like the dynamic? And I'm just, you know, I don't know it. We weren't yeah. alive then. What was the dynamic as far as giving your land up? How did that look? Do you know? Do your grandparents ever share that with you? Well, honestly, I'm sure it looks a lot like how it looks now. Uh, my yeah. family in the West Bank were sharing stories this week of how the village next to theirs, the settlers around the village were, and the settlers, when I say that, that is uh, like Israeli settlers. They were all given weapons by their government and told to, in the West Bank, so that's not near Gaza, that's in a different part of the town, go into the village and let the people know you leave or you die. 
Well, those are your options. And so I'm sure it looked a lot like that of you leave or you die. You get to make a choice here. But I'm not sure if that's really a a choice, right? So I know that you're talking about like your family coming back after the Nekba. Am I saying that correctly? Yep. And you told me this story in the past couple weeks that I thought was really profound and helped kind of humanize that entire situation for me. And it mm-hmm. had to do with you going back and visiting and seeing the house that was in your family for generations and how it's not in your family anymore. Can you explain what that was like yeah. a little bit in that story for our listeners? Yeah. So visiting Palestine, I've, I've had an opportunity to do that twice now when I was five and then again when I was 15. I just haven't had a chance since then. There's been a lot of violence and conflict. And so it's been hard to be able to go back now and bring my children and my spouse and all of that. And so last time I was there when I was 15, we crossed the border from a Palestinian side into Israel. And as we're driving past this home on a hill, my dad points to it and goes, that was where your great grandparents lived. And before them, you know, that was our family home. And so the way homes work in the Middle East is the patriarch builds a home. And as each of his sons get married, they add on to the home. So the son and his new wife then occupy another portion of the home. And it's like many homes within one. And that was the the family home. It had been there for generations. And after the Nekbeth, it was now on what was considered the Israeli side of the border. And when they had fled, when they became refugees, they lost everything, right? They lost their business. They lost their home. They lost their land. All of it didn't belong to them all of a sudden. And so who does it belong to if it doesn't belong to them? It's the people who live in the state of Israel now. To put this into perspective, yeah, your family has this home. It has history for your family in it, generations of history here. It's all of their wealth and all of their life's work. And some of them probably grew up in this house and then got married and then lived with their families in this house mm. over the span of generations. Yeah. And all of the sudden, that's not theirs anymore. And it's not like it was, we're taking this, but we're giving you an equivalent. Mm -hmm. It was just, this is our house now. And I remember you saying something like, but those, that's our family photos on the wall. Like, this is our, that's my vase on that shelf. (laughs) And they're like, yeah, but it's not anymore. That's, it's actually our house now. For me, that really put into perspective how wild that situation was like white wealthy americans do not really have a way to understand what that is like because like i cannot fathom someone just coming and being like that your house that you're living in right now yeah that's mine and you have to leave there's no other recourse there's nothing you just have to leave and that's mine and you can't fight for it or we'll kill you yeah that's that's your options I wanted you to tell that story because I think it's important for people to understand just how horribly bad that transition was. Well, and there's generational trauma there too, right? So it's not just like this horrific thing happened and then life continued on. There's wounds from that, from that instability, from that fear, from um, from that experience of oppression. Like that leaves its impact on that generation and the generation that follows, and the generation that follows, because they continue to live under oppressive rule. So it's not like it was this one terrible thing that happened, and then 
the world continued on. It There's ripple effects on the generations, and it's happening again. So with that context, you started talking about what it was like living through a 9-11 America as a Palestinian-American and how you started hiding that side of you and hiding your culture and starting to distance yourself. Did that change at one point where you started feeling confident again to be who you are publicly? That's a good question. And I don't know if this is related to an age thing. I don't know if it's just a maturity thing. I don't know if it's as you're growing in your identity in Christ, you can accept all the facets of yourself, right? So I don't, it, but it was a transition. As I aged, I was able to see the beauty and the significance of my culture of origin. And I would, honestly, I feel like there's probably a parallel between when I became a mother and starting to embrace those aspects of myself. And so um, there was definitely a turning point um, for me personally when I spent all of my preteen, teen, early 20 years really suppressing that aspect of myself. Or if I have to talk about it, it's almost shame-filled because it's like, oh, because then now you're going to think I'm a terrorist and my family's terrorists. So I'm not really going to bring a lot of attention to this. And I think it was as I aged, grew in my confidence of self, confidence in who the Lord has made me to be, that I was able to fully embrace those aspects of myself. Did your family experience any racism? So post 9-11, my mom actually just told me this story within the last year or two. And I thought it was so profound, the decisions my parents had to make for us. So 9-11 happens. And that day, my parents sent me to school. We were talking with them recently and like, why did you guys decide to send us to school? Like so many of our friends, their parents kept them home. And my mom goes, if I kept you home, then people would think we had something to hide. And then you would face even unwarranted hatred. I wanted to protect you from that by putting you there to make sure people knew we had nothing to hide. Even in that boldness and confidence, the FBI still shows up at our doorstep because my dad's a Palestinian man. And there are still, teenagers are mean, man. Like there were still bullies. There was still physical, verbal, and emotional assaults that happened. Like that, it's just... Unfortunately, I think part of growing up and then for there to have been such a massive crisis that hit our country and was the most frightening thing that we've experienced, people afraid are going to do really mean and hurtful things. You bring up a really good point with that because people are doing mean and hurtful things right now. I was telling Layla what is so ignorant of many of us in the West is we see someone that is brown and like maybe looks like they're from the Middle East and we just put you all into the same basket. Like we don't have like different categories for different nationalities. It's just that part of the world to many of us is just all one thing. And I think a large part of that is because we really don't have access to uh, many of the people that live there or that region in general. News wise, there's not a ton of reporting like you have to dig to be informed about that part of the world and the people that live in that part of the world. Immediately when this happened, I was talking to Layla and her husband and just said, I'm so afraid that hate crimes are going to rise. I've been witnessing, I mean, I'm very, I will say I'm chronically online. Most of my advocacy for the podcast happens in online spaces. And I have been witnessing 
In particular, I had already been witnessing anti-Semitism rising at really scary rates for the last year. And then I remember during 9-11. So fun fact, Layla and I went to the same school. So we're actually from the same area, even though we weren't friends in high school. So I missed out on all this awesome Layla time. I'm super (laughs) sad about it. I remember specifically when 9-11 happened, the mosques in Phoenix being attacked and vandalized. And it was really, really scary for the Muslim community in just our own state. And so as soon as this happened, immediately I was like, this is bad and it's going to get worse. And extremists are going to take the opportunity, people that already hated Jewish people or people that already hate anyone brown and Middle Eastern are going to use this as an opportunity to try to kill them, hurt them, cause other people to hate them. And we're seeing it in real time here. And so... Layla and I were talking before we recorded about how we think it's important to say that just because maybe I'll be the first person to say it, like we condemn what's happening in Gaza right now. And we absolutely are not desiring for Israel to continue bombing this people group. And we are hoping that someone intervenes and that the people of Palestine are able to find freedom and liberation and thrive and that their families can continue on for the next generations and that their culture can continue to grow and flourish. With that, that does not mean that we think that all Jews should die or that anti-Semitism is okay. To be consistent in our ethic, we need to say that we believe that all life is sacred. We believe that Palestinian lives and Israeli lives and your life and my life, anybody's life that it was created and is worthy and valuable because they are made in the image of God. And we full-heartedly condemn anti-Semitism or Islamophobia. So if you are listening to this and getting angry at Jewish people, then you are misdirecting your anger. And it should not be towards... It can be towards governments, though. (laughs) So (laughs) I want to continue on in your story a little bit. So you grew in your confidence as a mother and as a human in sharing a little bit more of your origins and your family stories. Through that, what has experiencing this conflict done as you've now come into self-confidence as a Palestinian American, self-confidence as somebody who wants to speak out about what your origins are and your family history? What has it been like to experience what is going on right now? Yeah. So I'd even say instead of conflict, I'd actually prefer the term crisis. Sorry. No, no, don't be sorry. No, this is, I mean, it's even good to have a conversation about because when we use the term conflict, it gives room for assuming it's two equal parties having a conflict about something. And it's not two equal parties. We know that without a shadow of a doubt, this is one party with a ton of power and control and another party who's been oppressed for the last 70 plus years. So it's not an equal conflict. It's a crisis. And so when I first found out about this crisis three Saturdays ago now, I had two initial thoughts. My first thought was, Lord, give me opportunities to speak about this. Because up until recent history, I would shy away from opportunities to speak and use, honestly, my privilege here as American to live in my freedom. I've not used my privilege to speak about my people. And my second prayer was, 
let this bring about the liberation of Palestine. Because the reality is we as Palestinians here in America, across the globe, living in Palestine, we hear news of attacks like every other day. Things are happening, right? It, it is very, very constant. It's very consistent. You're not going to hear about it on Western media news outlets. It's because I have family there. It's because I follow Palestinian accounts that I'm able to have access to the stories of what's happening there. And so Saturday night happened, and I was hopeful that we'll have opportunities to humanize the Palestinian people throughout this, this crisis, um, and that the world can see with open eyes, um, that the veil would come down a little bit, um, that we haven't been told the whole story here, that we've looked at everything happening in Israel with a very specific lens, and we've not seen the Palestinian people, because maybe we're so in love with the idea of bringing about the end of times, or we're so in love with whatever the end goal might be that we've completely pushed the Palestinian people out of our sight and out of our mind. And so I was hopeful that this could bring the world's attention to the things that we hear about every single day. So Saturday happens. Those are my first two thoughts. I had no idea what the following three weeks would look like. I had no idea that the inhumane acts that would continue to happen for clarity's sake What happened to Israelis on October 7th was horrific and unacceptable, and violence of any form is not okay. And what's continued to happen to the people living in Gaza, what's continued to happen to the people living in the West Bank is completely not okay. It is inhumane. It is evil. It is violent. I think especially as Christians, people who believe in Jesus, people who want to live their days looking more and more like Jesus— He lets us know where our stand should be. And it is not as complicated as we like to make it. When he's asked, like, what are the most important things for us to do? He says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. And then he continues and says, love your neighbor as yourself. So what does it mean for us to love our neighbors as ourselves? And it doesn't just say, love your neighbor who can get you to the end that you want. Love your rich neighbor. Love your whatever neighbor. Give lip service to the person who can't serve you. No, it's love your neighbor as yourself. And as ourselves here in America, man, I love my freedom. I love my ability to care for my children. I love my opportunity to worship my God the way that I see fit. I love the freedom to be able to to, to live out the lives we have, to seek shelter and food and clothing and water. And we have so much here. That is how I love myself is by caring and having opportunity to bring all of these resources to myself. So how do I love my neighbor as myself is ensuring that they have access to those resources as well. And it's so easy to give the lip service of like, well, I'm praying for you. I'm, I'm praying for you. My thoughts are with you. I'm praying for you. But I feel like that falls so short. <laughs> it falls so short. I feel like prayer needs to be pushing us and spurring us into action. And it can feel so helpless. Like, how do I help something that is happening 5,000 miles away? Like, I can't help there. And what's amazing is that if you are in America, we've been given the ability to let our government know what we do or don't want our tax dollars to be spent on. And we can say in our ability to love our neighbors, we'd rather our tax dollars go to humanitarian aid. We want to demand a ceasefire. We want to demand a release of the hostages. We want to be consistent in our love for our neighbor, all our neighbors. And the liberation of Palestine does not mean the oppression of the Israeli people. That's not, it's not either or. When we are saying 
we want the liberation, we want the freedom of Palestine. It is not by oppressing the Jewish people. It is by both of us being lifted up, living in freedom, living in liberation, that we can fully experience freedom and peace because we can't get to peace if another people group is actually being oppressed in it. So my prayer is that here in America as Christians, that yeah, we're praying for our neighbors and we're working towards the liberation of an oppressed people group and we are not letting our anger or our hurt be used to oppress another people group instead. That's not the goal here. That's not the answer here. I have a question because I think this will yeah. come up a lot. When people look at this crisis, specifically the crisis and how it started, there's definitely going to be a dialogue about Hamas and how Hamas yeah. is integrated into the Palestinian culture where they're headquartered. Can you share a little bit about Hamas and your view of Hamas and, and maybe the average mm -hmm. Palestinian's view of Hamas and how that might not be similar to what we are told uh, here in America? Yeah, that's a really good question. So if we're going to talk about Hamas and how it's, you use the words, integrated into Palestinian culture, did you know Hamas doesn't exist in the West Bank? And guess what? Palestinians there still die. Palestinians there still have their land taken. Palestinians there are still being oppressed on their way to work, on their way to school. They can't pass borders freely. Hamas has no business in the West Bank. The West Bank is actually partially controlled by the state of Israel. And so it's how can we say that Hamas is so integrated into Palestinian culture when it doesn't exist in portions of Palestine? So I think that there needs to be a lot of education on who and what Hamas is, again, the acts that were taken out, the violence that was experienced on the 7th was unacceptable. That was not okay. Hamas didn't become, they didn't form in a, in a chamber by themselves. It's years of systemic abuse, of oppression, of hatred, of horrific acts being done that caused this wing to rise up. If the Palestinian people lived in liberation, I truly don't believe that you would see violence played out the way that it did. When a people live in freedom, when they are liberated, they have no reason to act out in that violence because they have all their needs met. But at this point, you're tying their hands behind their back <laughs> and then going, okay, now live your life inside this open air prison. No, we're not going to give you freedom. No, you can't vote. No, you can't go get your own water. I'm going to provide you your water when I feel like it. No, you can't get your child medicine. I'm going to control that too. No, you can't leave. You can't leave. I've been asked, oh, do you have family in Gaza? Have they ever thought about leaving? When the terms open air prison are being used, it's not like an exaggeration. They cannot leave. And so it's not like Hamas just popped up out of nowhere. It is the last 16 years of oppression, of aggressive acts being taken out against the Gazan people living in Gaza that caused the rising up of Hamas. Again, evil, but it was an evil response to evil being acted against them. So I think that especially humans stepping away from it, I think that we can have understanding for the reason why. We can understand why they even existed. Once we understand and humanize what the Palestinian people have lived through and experienced. Yeah. And I think it's important to to talk about that. I've been taught this and and I'm sure others and that are listening to this have heard this, that, you know, Israel as a nation state, you know, is surrounded by what governments that would deem Israel as enemy or they may have religious uh, ideology that says, and this is not true of all Muslims. This is true of extremists. 
right, who may say this nation state, this people group of is Israeli needs to be wiped off the map. But that is looking at a government and an extremist mm. group and saying that is their opinion. The problem is, is that we don't sit back and say, well, all right, well, yeah, I mean, governments are evil. They can be evil. Extremist groups can be evil and typically are. It doesn't necessarily mean it represents the people. And so when you look at this crisis, you have to take it down to the people level because there's a big push right now for what's happening in Gaza where Israeli his, or Israel, uh, I think it was the Israel defense minister, basically said, everybody there, get out because yeah. they are trying to essentially you know, eradicate Hamas. But like you just said, it's hard to get out of, of Palestine. And yeah. you often can't. Even if that call is out there, is it safe to say it's going to be next to impossible for people to mobilize and get out of, get out of where they are? There's currently no way out. Yeah. As far as I know, unless something happened while we've been recording, there is no way out. So what's fascinating, I don't want to get too sidetracked, but really the realities of what's happening currently is they do things like cut all communications and electricity. People have no knowledge of what's happening, yet the West knows what's about to happen. We know what's about to get bombed because they are announcing it hey, guys, we don't want you to die. Get out. But what what the West doesn't know is that it's not like they're sitting in front of televisions right now in Gaza watching them say that. It's like, hopefully they got a pamphlet dropped that said get out and they have nowhere to go. Or even, hey, leave the north and go to the south. And then on their way there, their convoys are being attacked. The South is being attacked. The hospitals, the, the places of worship, the schools, they're being attacked. They're told, go here, you will be safe. And then, oh, surprise, that's actually where Hamas is hiding. So we're actually going to attack that over there instead. And so I think that there's a manipulation in the media trying to present as if there is care for human life. Mm -hmm. And if there was care for the value of human life, we would not have over 8,000 civilians murdered almost half children. That would yeah. not be the reality if we valued human life. Mm -hmm. Well, and I think it's important to say too, like it's it's important to humanize it when you're, you're looking at 8,000 people, innocent people that are just living, going about their day, wanting to just make it through the day and, and with their family. And then you have the structures and the governments like Hamas and Israel going after each other in a violent way that and both sides are not thinking, because my opinion, are not thinking of the people. They're just thinking of destroying each other. And so it's, again, this is my opinion. It's important to step back and realize that this is, this is happening. This, this crisis is happening between governments and groups where there is, there is hate and fear. And the people are being sacrificed on both sides. That is not the way of the risen king. It's not. Yeah. It's yeah. not the way of renewal. It's not what Jesus died for and rose again for. It's not what his great I mean I I know we think the great commission is about saving souls, but I mean it's not what he wants us doing here actively trying to work on renewal of mankind. And I think the conflict that we have in these types of conversations is that we identify more with the groups or the government or the propaganda than we do people. Mm -hmm. And the challenge here is to say, think of the people. 
because that is what the most important thing is. Mm -hmm. We as white Christian Americans, we don't think of people. (laughs) We think we've been trained to think of groups and systems. That is not the way of Jesus. And so I think that's the challenge that I would say to everyone is to say, it is a complicated, messy history. And there are probably rights and wrongs on both sides. But what has happened throughout the history is the people have been sacrificed. And for what? I mean, it's the same shit going on that happened Mm -hmm. since the beginning of time. For what? For more death? How is that glorifying God? Well, and I think you bring up such an important point of we miss the opportunity to see the reflection of our God in each other when we're busy dehumanizing each other. And that goes to both parties. We have seen dehumanization of the Palestinian people. And honestly, the I was I was talking to my pastor about this this week of, well, what does the future like as if I can answer that, as if I've got the <laughs> political influence, the historical knowledge, as if I've got all of that. But if we were to move forward, what does forward look like? And in my humble mind, I'm looking at it going, deliberation of both people groups, because both people groups have value. But we now have to come into it with the knowledge that there's been over 70 plus years of dehumanization. The Israelis have looked at the Palestinian people as less than. The Palestinian people have now been oppressed by the Israeli people. And so now they are going to look at their oppressors as less than. Both people have been dehumanized in each other's mind. If we're looking at it from a Christian point of view, if we're looking at it the way that As a follower of Jesus, what we should be looking at other people is full of value, full of worth. The reflection of our creator is in each of us. And so there is going to be so much work of how do we bring back the value of human life? How do we look at each other and see worth and see dignity and see humanity in it? And it is not an easy forward. I believe it can exist. I believe a liberation of Palestine can exist while a free Israel exists too. I believe in that because we can see that. We see that happen all over the world. Like people groups who are at odds with each other can find a way to live at peace with each other. So it's not that it it hasn't ever happened before, but I'm not ignorant to the fact that there has been decades of dehumanization and demonizing other people. And it is going to be a redeeming work to put value back into the people that you've thought of as less than. Yeah. And also nothing like bombing their entire life yeah. to radicalize another generation. Yeah. I mean, I would be pretty radicalized myself if my entire family was destroyed and everything I've ever known yeah. and loved was taken from me by an oppressive government. That's something else that I have struggled with during the last three weeks is we say that we care about eradicating radicalized Hamas, right? Yet in the process, we are doing everything possible to radicalize another generation of children who are losing their brothers and sisters and parents and aunts and uncles and grandparents. So to answer violence with this level of disproportionate violence, we are continuing to just guarantee generations further of radicalized people. That's what happens when you experience things like this. So I think it's also important to divorce this idea because when a, a Christian would hear about peace in the Middle East or peace in Israel, 
they immediately they immediately think of the end times. I mean, I, when I was a kid, I'd be like, "Oh, the Antichrist is around the corner." And so, I I think it's important for us to put that down and realize that that was something that we have grown up with in our culture. That uh, and you could still believe it. I don't believe it. Uh, that necessarily is misleading and 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 has its own agenda behind it. And to just ask yourself a question, liberated, free, and peaceful groups of people living together, but still holding on to their family, their history, their diversity, their culture is a great thing. And we should want that. And we should want that for everybody. And that is something that is of Jesus. And that, to me, is more along the lines of how we should center all these dialogues or conversations and think about it. Because the idea of saying, oh, if we have peace there, then the Antichrist is there, is driven out of a thing of fear, power, and control. And that is not of Jesus. None of that is. And I think also, like, we're not in this crisis because we're white and we... I mean, we have all the, I have more privilege than everybody on this, this call, but even John as a white woman has privilege too. And like to think of those that not only the Palestinians, but also the Jewish people who are living through this crisis, there's hurt on every side of this. It's just that the violence is disproportionately slanted toward one people group. And we have to acknowledge that we can't sit there and say, that's not a reality. That is a reality. And that violence, whether it's here in America or anywhere in the world is not something we should want or cheer for. It is something that as Christians, we should actively seek peace and understanding. And that's also, I think, important to kind of help shape this kind of dialogue or conversation. Yeah, no, I really appreciate that. So something that has come up quite a bit that I've noticed is um, this dialogue around ceasefire and how... There's arguments on both sides, right? So, so when Layla, when you say ceasefire, you're asking them to stop bombing your people. But also, then I've heard perspectives from the Israeli side that is, if we stop, then we will be destroyed. We will be bombed by Hamas or killed by Hamas. And so we can't stop. And you're asking us to stop protecting ourselves. Can you speak to that a little bit? So what I'm hearing you say is... To prevent you from killing me first, I'm going to kill as many of you as I possibly can. So we're going to operate from fear and kill more people in hopes that more people won't die. I think we've got a really faulty thought process here. And it's not just a ceasefire. A ceasefire is not even the bare minimum. A ceasefire is the bottom of the totem pole when it comes to the humanitarian aid that needs to be pushed forward here. It is a ceasefire and a release of hostages. It's a ceasefire and a release of the prisoners, of the Palestinian prisoners in in Israeli jails. It's a ceasefire and humanitarian aid by truckfuls, not 20 trucks. We need hundreds and thousands of trucks to go in today. We need water. We need food. We need space to bury these bodies. There is disease that is breaking out. The number of 8,000, I think that was what was today, was being pushed around. If we don't have aid go in, that is the bare minimum of the deaths that are going to happen from the diseases, from drinking soiled water, from not being able to clean yourself, from not being able to operate the blood diseases that are going to happen. We have decaying corpses right next to where you are living. 
we're barely scratching the number of what is going to actually unfold. So it's not a ceasefire. It's a ceasefire and a ton of other actions that need to happen to ensure that as many lives as possible can be spared. Yes. And amen. And you said something to me over the past couple of weeks that helped me put this into perspective because I was like really struggling with this idea of am I if I call for a ceasefire, am I saying, Israel, don't protect yourself it, because those things are being being combined into the same thing publicly it's if you call for a ceasefire you're saying Israel has no right to protect itself and when I said that you said what how can we ever correlate I don't know if correlates the right word the access to weapons that Hamas has to what Israel has at this point in particular I mean first off we all need to just admit that Israel has the Iron Dome like this insane creation that is really cool, actually, that they can just bubble themselves and keep rockets from coming in. Right. But also it's not like Israel stops bombing them. And then all of a sudden Hamas has the same technology and same weaponry that Israel had and is now going mm -hmm. to use that against Israel. Am I am I doing a good job yeah. of explaining this? Yeah, we're talking about a people group who live in an open air prison Verse a people group who have access to the IDF, who are the known as the most powerful advanced military in the world. And so the fear of retribution here, of retaliation, if that's a better word, it falls so short. You've got the best military in the world. Their ability to defend themselves, they have the right to defend themselves. Sure, protect yourself from violence. They've got the right to do that, but so do the Palestinian people, if that if that's the line of thought that you're going to explore, if that's the, mm -hmm. the trajectory that they want to go. And so it just, it falls short. We're operating, again, out of fear. And I understand that there is so much fear mm -hmm. right now. There is so much fear, especially since there's so much mm -hmm. propaganda. Everyone is being bombarded with, especially if you're in the West, with media that is telling us a very, very specific narrative. And it's horrifying. It is absolutely terrifying. But the reality is what the Palestinian people are experiencing right now in Gaza, what they're experiencing right now in the West Bank is horrific. It is absolutely unjust. And as Christians, specifically, I'm speaking to us Christians who believe in Jesus, it is not I stand with this people at the cost of another. It is I see the God in you, right? I see our creator in you and I stand for your life your life because you have value and you have worth and you have dignity. Well, and also what happens if there is a ceasefire? Let's say the the crisis, the, the violence dissipates or let's say it stops. Mm -hmm. You still have a situation where a people group is living in types of conditions that are unacceptable for humanity. So we haven't solved the issue. Hamas Absolutely. will just come back and yeah. Israel will strike again. So the challenge here, I think, for leadership, for Christians in general, is to say the ceasefire is nothing. What we want is for these people, both sides, to live in peace and be able to live and seek and love their families and seek their God or their gods. And work. And and they can't work, even work, go like, to the hospital, 
if they get sick, uh, to pursue to an movie. education, yeah, pursue an education, be able to leave. That I think is critical to say. Like ceasefire may stop the violence temporarily, but it does not solve Mm-mm. the crisis. Well, and I don't think the crisis will get solved unless there is a, a liberated Palestine. Because like you yeah. said, we continue to oppress. We will have another generation of resistance. It just It's yeah. the reality of oppression. And so in order to prevent another generation of resistance to come forward, we need liberation. We need liberation to have true peace. Both yeah. parties are deserving of that. They're deserving of a future full of peace. And if you look at another conflict we have right now, which is equally unacceptable, you have Russia that invaded Mm -hmm. the Ukraine, and they invaded the Ukraine for a lot of different reasons, all of them which are not just. But their goal is to take back the Ukraine. And we look at Russia and this lens of saying like, hey, this is is evil, what's going on, this is unacceptable. And I think we have to look at both conflicts and say, they both have similarities and what's going on and our view of them is different and ask ourselves why and be able to like just say like as as a christian in the west like why and 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 have that dialogue because both both that is a full on conflict and i know we're saying you know the other ones are crisis but both of them we could call them yeah. crises yeah. and they're both unacceptable yeah but we have a different fl- lens on both. And I think it's important to ask ourselves why, because I think it will help us understand and unpack maybe some of the lenses of how we're viewing both of these situations today. And Aaron said something that I thought was really helpful as in my own family, in our marriage, we've been processing. I mean, again, like I said in the beginning, it's we're glued to media about this right now, right? It's just so horrific and so big. And clearly, I mean, I'm emotionally invested on another level because I love Layla and her family and she is, I care about their culture. And that's sad that it takes knowing somebody personally, but it does kind of change the way that you experience this emotionally. He said it's really easy for us on the West to see a Ukrainian person that looks like us and to see the horrors that they experienced when Russia invaded. And I mean, horrific things have happened there. And it's easy for us to put ourselves in their shoes and to say that could be me. That person looks like me. When that person is grieving or angry, I see myself in them. It's really hard for us white Western evangelicals to do that when it's a Palestinian. And what is Even fascinating about this, fascinating is a bad word, but interesting in a sad way about this crisis is that we can see Israeli people that are more fair skinned and we can see ourselves in them. But I mean, there is a distinct Palestinian look, you know, (laughs) like you you are more brown than me and you have like I can't see myself in you. And so because of that, I don't view you as human or the same type of human. And I think that's something we really need to wrestle with is why do we only care about the people that look like us? And what is that? Is it just because we have lost this ability to empathy, like have empathy for anyone that doesn't look like us? Is it because we have to be able to center ourselves in it in order to care enough? What is that? I don't have the answer, but I think that there's something 
really profound to that question that he, that Aaron was raising. Like, why why is it so easy for us in the West to care about what's happening in Ukraine and to see those atrocities and to to advocate on behalf of Ukrainians? And why can't we do that with Palestinians? I have a question for you. You spoke a little bit about how Hamas is not in the West Bank. People have literally gotten no category for what you just said when you say that. Palestinians are just spread out. And correct me if I'm wrong. When the Nekba happened, it's not like you they sent all Palestinians to one place. Everybody got sent different places to a degree, correct? Yeah, there was a and honestly there's so many YouTube videos they're going to do a much better job of explaining all of these details, right? And maybe we can even have some show notes of like, hey, check out this, check out this. Another one I would add to that list is um, that TED Talk on the danger of a single story. Like, yes. I think that there's so many incredible resources that are going to do a much more eloquent job speaking to this than I will. But if we're going to do a quick summary, it's the Nekba happens, the crisis happens, and Palestinians scatter. We're given some land, some leave the country, go into other countries, some get different types of passports. But honestly, even when they leave other countries, they've given like second tier passports, just like the Palestinians who end up being able to stay in the state of Israel, there's like two different types of qualifications. There's like, I have the Israeli card, and then it's like, I'm a Palestinian with an Israeli number. So it's like, even the ones who stayed there, the way that Palestinians have been treated in Palestine and in the state of Israel is continues to be a division that we wouldn't stand for here in the States. There were also like territories. So we've got the West Bank, we've got other little territories. And then 16 years ago, the Gaza Strip was created. And so there's this really beautiful, not beautiful, it's heartbreaking really, but it's a really clear example of like, Gaza isn't just like, oh, these are people who lived in Gaza and like, then they built a wall around them. It was like, there were all these villages and towns that the settlers pushed into the Gaza Strip. And so it's all of these other towns, all with slightly different like cultural practices. They all do things slightly different, right? We're not exactly like our neighbor. And so everyone does things slightly different in each of their towns and villages. And they all get pushed into the Gaza Strip, which is like 25 miles by I think five miles. And so it is 2.2 million people in, we live in Arizona, so we can picture what Scottsdale looks like. 2.2 million people squished into Scottsdale. There are little pockets of territories and they continue like you'll watch these videos of these maps of like, oh, this was Palestinian land. And it just continues to shrink and shrink and shrink as the territories get smaller and the mm -hmm. settler land gets larger and larger and larger. Can you explain what the settlers are? Because I had no idea about that dynamic in the Middle East until yeah. we've been talking the last three weeks. Yeah. So... Just like with any people group, we're going to have more moderate-minded and then more extreme-minded people, right? It's just the reality of of humanity. And yeah, so, we all watched January six happen exactly here Great. in the U.S. Yes. <laughs> so settlers moved into these parts of Israel that are really close to the Palestinian territories. And they tend to be very aggressively minded. They believe that all of this land belongs to them. And so there tends to be, with the term settlers, they're literally settling the land, right? And so they're aggressive in their interactions. They believe this land belongs to them because of their faith. And so it is a very quick summary of what is what does that terminology mean is it's uh, people who have come to settle the land and 
They want to settle all of it. Would it be like a fair assessment to say like with in America when we had like, uh, I don't know, what's called Manifest Destiny where we're like, we're going to take, you know, the entire state, like let's say Georgia, and we eventually would would essentially push the people out, the Native Americans out of that land. We give them smaller and smaller land until we took all of it. Would it be that type of mindset? Is that a similar mindset? Honestly, the parallels between what the Palestinian people have experienced and what the people who originally lived on American soil experienced is horrifically similar. So yes, I think that is a great, great, great example. And I think within those, because we didn't live, none of us lived back then, probably within that time, there was probably people in America that were like, we don't care if our neighbors keep that land over there. And then there were others. Yeah more tied to the government, they were like, we're taking everything and we want it all. Yeah. So, okay. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's a great, great example. And it can really put into perspective for us Americans, like, how do we look at this? So I ask you that question because you have mentioned a couple times during this interview that your family is still in the West Bank and they're not safe. It's not like Only Palestinians in Gaza are experiencing horrific atrocities. Yes, it's another level when it's Mm -hmm. just Gaza is rubble. But we are not far off from that in the West Bank. Also, a lot of people think they're experts or very well informed about what's going on. This is Sassy Jana coming out. (laughs) They're not getting phone calls from family like you're getting where you're having to like hope that your family communicates with you the next day, and they're not even in Gaza. So can you explain a little bit about what's going on in the West Bank right now? You know, I was talking to my sister and talking a little bit about generational trauma. And my grandmother, the one who lived in Ramallah, she she is married to the the shepherd (laughs) in Ramallah. We have stories of her hiding my uncle's from IDF, from the settlers, hiding them because there would be stories of them just coming into the villages, taking the men, killing them or imprisoning them. Now, my aunts and my cousins are doing the same things with their sons and their spouses. There is this continual generational trauma where things are happening over and over and over again. It is a continuation. Um, I was talking to my grandma and I was like, She seemed so fine and I was so overwhelmed. And I was just, and we're speaking in Arabic. And I'm like, Grandma, aren't you, aren't you worried? Like, you don't even sound worried right now. And she goes, What's the point of worry? I just pray and I leave it to Jesus to fix. And I was just so, I I felt two things. One, your faith is so beautiful. But two, have you been under oppression for so long? that you just accept that this is the way life is meant to be. And I'm not okay with that. I'm not okay with just accepting that this is just the way that life has to be. And so, yeah, I'm going to pray. And I am going to beg in undignified ways and in really beautiful ways and in quiet ways and in loud and angry ways and in every way that I know how that the Lord intervenes, that he moves in our hearts so that we can see the humanity in our Gazan brothers and sisters, that we can see the humanity in our Palestinian brother and sisters. And I'm not going to stop at praying. (laughs) I'm also going to act. I'm going to let my government know that I am not okay with life being taken, any life being taken in this capacity, that we want a ceasefire. We want 
prisoners and hostages to be released. We want humanitarian aid to go to where it needs to go. We demand water and electricity and medicine. Like there's stories of they don't even have antiseptic in the hospitals in Gaza. So they're pouring vinegar to try to clear out the wounds. They don't even have anesthesia. So they're doing operations without anesthesia at this point. Like the amount of horror and trauma these people are experiencing right now is heart-wrenching and it makes you sick to your stomach. And so, yeah, I'm going to pray and I'm going to try to adopt her the grace and the confidence that she has in her prayers. And I'm also going to do everything I can with the opportunities and the privileges that we've been given to make another voice heard, that we're not okay with it. When you talk about reaching out to our government and making our voice heard, what are some things that you would encourage us to be saying and actions you would be encouraging us to take? And are you informed about what our tax dollars are funding? Can you put a little bit of perspective to to things you specifically know our tax dollars are funding? I can give one. Yeah, go for it. We just had Biden step in, actually. Thank God someone stepped in because we found out, America found out because of videos that they were just arming regular citizens with assault rifles in Israel right now. And it was funded by us. We were we bought a bunch of guns to be handed out to Israelis that are just regular citizens that now get to be like a special peace force with assault rifles. How does that translate to stuff like the West Bank and settlers? I just I'm, I'm curious yeah. what we all think about that. That's something that are we funded. You, yeah. me, all of us funded by living in America. Yeah. I feel like you asked a couple of things, so I'm going to try to break it down. So one, what can we do? Again, maybe we can add this in the show notes, but there are scripts that you can follow along. You call your representatives and you let them know, hey, these are the things that I want to see. You're my representative. I voted for you. You represent me, and I want you to push these things forward. And so there are absolutely scripts that we can follow that help us know how to speak to our representatives to advocate for a ceasefire, for a release of hostages, for humanitarian aid to get to where it needs to go. You can also write. You can join a rally. Physical bodies are such a man. There is this Instagram account called uh, Jewish Voices for Peace, and it is probably the most encouraging thing for me to see in this season, especially growing up in a world that wants to pit Jews against Palestinians. Like it just that it's a that's like a really cool thing to do in media, right? There's we should hate each other. And so to see all of these displays of solidarity coming from people who the world states we should hate each other, it has been the most encouraging thing ever. And so show up to a rally does not mean you break out and you start fighting people. That's not productive, that's distracting from the real cause. And it is not an opportunity for you to show up with an anti-Semitic sign. Again, distracting. That is not helpful. There is no room for hate in the freedom and liberation of the Palestinian people. And so show up to a rally and be a physical body and let the multitude of humanity move our government. Like let that compassion flow. It is so beautiful for me to see, again, especially with the context of like I had to for my own mind, my own physical desire for safety, I felt like I was, as if I had to hide this aspect of myself, this Palestinian heritage of myself. And to see 
a Jewish person standing there demanding a ceasefire, demanding that not another body will drop in their name. Like it is just so, so beautiful to me. And so find opportunities to show up physically. Now, in terms of our tax dollars, again, we get, we get to live in America, right? And so we get to vote for the people we want in office and they get to determine how we're going to spend our tax dollars. There's a set amount of money that goes to Israel every single year. I was breaking down the figures. My sister lives um, in another state. And, you know, you can find this information out online of how much each state gives to Israel because each state, you know, funds different aspects of what Israel does. And she's like, if we took all the money that state specifically sends to Israel and instead poured into our own economy, we would actually completely eliminate homelessness in the state. It would be gone because of the millions of dollars that get sent to another country. And so if we're able to use our voices, again, our representatives are there to represent us. If we can use our voices to demand that our tax dollars, instead of going to fund a genocide, are instead invested back into our communities, what can we do for our population that lives outdoors? What can we do to support addicts and get them out of their their bondage? What can we do to assist people living below the poverty line to provide them opportunities? What could we do for our education systems? Imagine America paying their teachers what they deserve. What can we do for our children? And if we spent these millions of dollars that are going overseas to fund a genocide instead poured them back into our own communities, what could we do with that? How would our world change? It would be so significant. Preach. That Jewish Voices for Peace, I just looked it up. It's actually remarkable. But the yeah. biggest thing, too. Yeah. It's it, so I'll spend probably most of the day looking at it. But the biggest thing, I too, I think that we as Christians should do listening to this, other than everything that you said, one of the things is we need to mourn the fact that families have died, families have been eradicated, that young people have died. I mean, it continues on on both sides of this crisis, there is death. And when there is death, that is not the way of Jesus. And we have to take time to mourn and ask ourselves why we're okay just being surrounded by death and, and allowing it to be in our world. That we need to all reflect on because it's it's not the way of Jesus. And we are a, a country obsessed with death and uh, desensitized by it. I don't know why. It's it's a problem. I mean, it's just remarkable that we can wake up and look at these numbers of people that have died and just be like, okay, I'm going to go get a bagel now. Like that should bother all of us that we can't, like we shouldn't get past, these are names, these are people that are alive, that were alive yesterday, that are young, that don't get an opportunity to grow up. And we cannot be okay with that. Yeah, the grief has been very overwhelming, and I appreciate you bringing attention to it because there is I, – I, I almost wonder if, like you said, the desensitized to it of like it just seems like such an insane number that we can't even put – our minds can't wrap around it. Like we look at Instagram posts that have 100,000 likes and like our brains can't comprehend what does 8,000 deaths look like? What does 4,000 tiny little white bags of little children bodies look like. We can't capture that loss. Terrific. I think that's a good transition into, I would love for Layla to have a moment to speak to church leaders, pastors, people that have sway within their congregations. 
about what's going on. I will tell you the pastors that I know feel paralyzed about how to engage this as a church from the pulpit. And some of them are outright just spewing end times (laughs) rhetoric. And I want to remind every pastor or church leader or congregant that listens to this right now, if you are in a church, if you have not read Jesus and John Wayne, go read it. There is a political reason that our churches are also very invested in the Jewish state. And we cannot, we would be remiss not to mention that. Like there is, there is a political reason for America to be so strongly in support of Israel at all costs. And our churches historically are used to spread political ideology and to indoctrinate the people of America. And that is happening right now. And I want a better way. I want us to say no. I want us to step aside from that and to see the people and not the the governments. And I want you guys to hear Layla's voice before we end speaking to that a little bit. Well, honestly, I think that we've made Christianity complicated. And I don't think Jesus makes it as complicated. In fact, he makes it very, very easy. Um, I've referenced this before, and I'm going to reference it again, where Jesus says, love the Lord your God. How do we get into heaven? What is the right way to do this? What Pharisees are freaking out? What do we do? What do we do? And he just says it's simple. You love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, your strength, your mind, your body. Love the Lord your God. And you love your neighbor as yourself. Your neighbor. Not only your Jewish neighbor. Not only your white neighbor, not only your wealthy neighbor. It is love your neighbor as yourself. Um, And so we need to stop making Christianity complicated. It's really not. Love God, love your neighbor. That's it. It's so easy. It's almost too easy that we need to make it more complicated to show that we're more holy. (laughs) It's not. It's not complicated. It's not about politics. It's not about governments. It's, in fact, Jesus continually would push away from those things. He didn't want anything to do. He didn't want to associate with any of that stuff. We can see in the Bible of Jesus, uh, people seeing him as a source of power and of control. How do we control the masses? And wanted to force that upon him. And instead, he pushes away the opportunities to control people through government and through policy and through He doesn't want anything to do that. How do you love God? How do you serve him? How do you do well as a Christian? It is loving God. It is loving people. And that's it. It is so simple. And so I would encourage, if you're leading in a church right now, One, I'm praying for you because that is not an easy task. That is hard. There is a lot of responsibility on your shoulders. um, And the Lord has trusted you with something so precious, leading other people closer to him. And in doing so, you need to be well-educated. You cannot be flippant about this. You can't just take things for uh, the way they've been presented to you. I encourage you to grow in your knowledge and your compassion, um, grow in your mercy, and see people first. It is always people first. And as soon as we can see the the human on the other side of that screen, all of a sudden it's simple. It's so simple for us to know what to do. It's not about taking a stand for somebody or not taking a stand against somebody else. It is seeing humanity and wanting to speak life into it. 
I was having a conversation with somebody and it was actually the elders at our church. Um, and we were talking about Maslow's hierarchy of needs and how it's so easy for us as Christians to be like, oh yeah, like we totally want them to be saved one day. Like maybe it's because these are Muslim lives, right? Like majority of Muslim lives, like, you know, it's okay if we have less Muslims in the world, right? And it's like, well, we can't say that we want them to be converted. It's only, they're, they're only a worthy life if we can convert them to Christianity. I'm sorry, a person can't care about their faith if their physical needs are not being met. And so as a Christian, it is not enough to be like, well, I want them to believe in Jesus. I want them to have eternity in heaven. I want them to uh, experience. Yes, those things are liberation for our souls, but liberation in our bodies, the freedom to be able to meet our physical needs needs to happen before we can care for our spiritual needs. It just, it really does. A child doesn't care about a God who supposedly loves them if their parents are in pieces in front of them. They can't care about a God like that. If their needs aren't being met, if they don't have water, if they don't have medicine, if they don't have clothes, it's hard to care about their spirituality when their physical needs are not being met. And so I would, I guess, encourage leaders in the church, people in the church, all of us in the church, to be able to see the humanity on the other end of the screen and to seek out ways to meet their physical needs. And right now, their greatest physical need is safety. Meeting that need in order to be able to care for any spiritual needs that are a priority. Preach. And, you know, it reminds me a lot of uh, we had a conversation with my friend Joash Thomas. He immigrated over from India and he talks about how Western evangelicalism has this extreme focus on souls over bodies. And it's oppressive. It's a, it's a religion that is oppressive because it says nothing about your physical person matters. All we care about is your soul and we've separated those two things when they're intrinsically together. You can't separate those things. So you cannot care about someone's soul without caring about their body. It is one. And so I hope that people listening to this do that inner work. If you're struggling with your why, why can you not empathize? Why are you scared to speak up? I think a lot of people are scared to speak up. What is that fear? I'm not asking you to be a policy expert or an expert on just war. I've seen that a lot. I'm not asking for any of that. I know nothing. I will say that. I I know more than I've ever known about Israel and Palestine in the Middle East at this point of my life, and I know nothing. (laughs) Yet, I do know that I have privilege, and I do know that my voice holds more weight in some spaces than Layla's voice, unfortunately. It shouldn't, but it does. And so how can I use my voice to uplift Layla's voice? How can I use any platform or privilege I have to help empower the voices of Palestinians, empower the voices of the people that are losing their families their entire life? How do we support that and come alongside people who are fighting for their freedom, for their history, for their culture to continue to exist. Well, that looks like laying down our own privilege and speaking up and platforming the voices of those that most need their voices heard right now. And that is people like you and your family. So I am super grateful that you came. And I I will say we got to celebrate Layla's birthday last week and it was so beautiful. First off, she had 
Palestinian food there and it was so delicious. <laughs> I'm like still dreaming of it. I was like, all right, I need to eat this every day. It was so good. We got to pray over her and talk about how it's so vast what is happening right now. And we're not just looking at deaths. We're looking at the death of an entire culture and something that I have wrestled with and am now starting to grasp about who Layla is as a person is the most hospitable, gracious, kind, honestly, you're self-sacrificial sometimes to a fault, <laughs> human being that loves well. And there's just a richness to who you are as a friend and as a mother. Anyone who knows you is blessed to know you. And it would be a disservice to say that that is not a huge part of your culture. And the people that you come from are why you are who you are. And if we could have a bazillion more Laylas in the world, we would be better for it. And so the idea of that culture no longer being there is something we should deeply grieve and that we should fight for. We should fight for the continuation of this people because they... One, our image bearers, but two, are just incredible human beings. So <laughs> thank you for joining us today. Thank you guys for giving me the space to talk. The views, thoughts, and opinions expressed here are the speaker's own and not those of this podcast. This content is presented for informational and educational purposes that constitute fair use, commentary, or criticism. While we make every effort to ensure that the information shared is accurate, we welcome any comment, suggestion, or correction of errors.